Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. This is episode number 340 with Gabby Lewis of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. The Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just wanted to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. What's going on, Founder Fam? Hope you're doing well wherever you are around the world. And I hope you're having an amazing start to 2021. Let's make this the best year yet. So let's talk about today's guest, Gabby Lewis. And he's one of the founders of a company called Magic Spoon. Now, these guys are going gangbusters And I talked to him around how he started this company, also his previous company, which is called XO Protein, which were basically protein snack bars made from crickets. And uh, yeah, how he kind of realized that that product wasn't the one for them and how they've moved on now and they've gone into the cereal market, you know, with his first company, he had incredible success too. Like they had angel investors like Tim Ferriss and Nas, and they ended up selling the company and, uh, you know, ended up raising capital. And uh, yeah, he talks about how to really create an epic product and like how you know when you're onto something. And I think that is so difficult sometimes to create an awesome product So we talk about influencer marketing, we talk about the most effective platform, we talk about what's next for the brand and, uh, you know, everything few and far between. But this company is growing extremely fast. It's fascinating what they're doing. Make sure you check it out as well. The branding, everything is just incredible. This is going to be a massive, massive e-commerce brand and it was so great to speak to Gabby. He was very, very, very uh, giving with everything that he's learned on his journey and everything he's doing to make this incredible brand. All right, guys, that's it from me. Now I jump at the show. The first uh, question that I ask everyone that comes on is, uh, how did you get your job? <laughs> wow, no one's ever really described it as a job in a while. But I'm from Scotland originally and came to the US where I live now for college graduated in 2013 and actually started a different food business than the one I'm currently running when I graduated from college. That was called XO Protein and we were actually making protein bars with cricket protein which we were introducing as a sustainable alternative protein source and I then sold that business a couple of years ago and wanted to stay in the food industry, wanted to do something a little bit less niche than cricket protein and found my way to the cereal market and so 
launched Magic Spoon, which is a line of high-protein, low-carb, healthy breakfast cereals. Yeah, wow. Interesting. So I was doing a bit of research and, um, yeah, there's not that much, to be honest, that um, can find about your your background online. Um, I don't know if that's on purpose and you're starting to do a bit <laughs> of media and PR, but, um, yeah, I'd love to know kind of, can you tell me a little more about ExoProtein, how it all started, um, how long ago was that? So that was launched in 2013, so about seven years ago. And it started, um, you know, it started when I was my senior year of college and we sort of read a couple of articles. There was a report actually that the United Nations put out about how sustainable and nutritious insect protein is. Um, you can grow it. You can grow insects basically indoors in vertical farms. Requires very little feed and water. So very sustainable, very healthy. But nobody was doing anything with that knowledge, mostly because obviously there's a bit of a marketing hurdle to get over there. And so we thought it'd be cool if we could actually figure out a way to get consumers over that hurdle and build a supply chain and create a line of products that introduced this new sustainable protein source. To, to the Western world, really. And so we teamed up with a three Michelin star chef and we created a line of protein bars that incorporated a protein powder that we made from crickets and launched that 2013, um, built that business for about five years and then sold it a couple of years ago. Yeah, interesting. So I'd love to delve a little bit deeper around how like that came about. Did you raise any funding? Um, how did you validate that idea? Um, can you talk me through that? Yeah. So we raised in total for that business, probably around seven or 8 million. And that was from, you know, investors ranging from strategic angels and influencers like Tim Ferriss to some celebrities like Nas and then some classic VC funds as well. And yeah, we were mostly direct to consumer. We sold in some retailers. We sold those bars in Whole Foods and in, in Equinox gyms, which I'm not sure if they've got them in Australia, but they're sort of bougie, fancy gyms here in the US. And yeah, we ran it for about five years before selling off. Yeah, I see. And um, did you like have to raise significant capital to get that business off the ground because of yeah, teaming up with like, you know, supply chain, like working all that side of the business out? It was... Mostly we wanted to go big, so we probably could have done it without raising the funds, but we wanted to really take a swing at this huge protein market. And the vision was to see if we could make cricket protein the next soy protein. And to do that, you you know, you know need to build up the supply chain to a pretty meaningful level. You obviously need to invest a lot into marketing. Um, and so we, we weren't really interested in just like, bootstrapping a protein bar business that we were going to sell at farmer's markets. You know, we wanted to make a splash, get a lot of PR, um, get into major retailers and really try and do it right. Yeah, I see. And how did you get your first customer for that business? Like, like how did you, like, how, what was your go-to-market strategy? Mm-hmm. So we actually launched with a Kickstarter campaign back when um, not many food brands were really doing Kickstarters back then. So we, you know, we graduated college in 2013, did a Kickstarter a month later, and that really helped sort of put it on the map and validate it to investors and retailers and everyone else. So from doing that Kickstarter, we were, we were in the New York Times, we were in Forbes twice that month, um, Fast Company, you know, all the sort of major media outlets. And then once that happened, we were no longer just like two random 18 year olds trying to sell crickets. We had a little more uh, gravitas, a little more legitimacy around it. So it sort of snowballed from there. Got you. I see. And then how did you like get like, uh, you know, angels like Tim Ferriss or Nas to invest? Um, I mean, honestly, the same as sort of any angel investor, you know, it, it's just um, a warm introduction, of course, helps. So, um, you know, it's different in every case, but um, I think in the case of, Tim, we were introduced through a different investor, angel investor, and he he loved the product. Um, this was back when paleo was very big. And at the time, 
you know, we made the argument that there's nothing more paleo than crickets because basically all these people were doing like the paleo diet and they were eating steak wrapped in bacon four times a day, which is not not what cavemen ate, you know. So like cavemen, like when people have really studied the paleolithic diet, our you know our ancestors were foraging for berries and eating bugs, and very rarely did they even like you know smoke bacon. Obviously, they weren't doing that. So. Um, a lot of the, we got a lot of influencers on board who are very into the paleo diet or variants of that diet. So not only Tim Ferriss, but, you know, people like John Durant and Rob Wolf, who were sort of the people that Mark Sisson, all the guys who wrote the sort of first paleo primal diet books had the biggest blogs. And so they, they came on board as early investors and then they helped us get our first customers. And so we sort of went after these niche diets deliberately and brought on board the sort of leading figureheads of those diets as investors in our business. And then they spoke about us on their blogs, their podcasts, their email newsletters, whatever it might be. And that was how we got our first customers. Yeah, very smart. Uh, okay, interesting. And then um, you ended up selling that company. Are you able to share kind of details around that? Or like, uh, you know, what what revenue did you get it up to after five years or like yeah. anything? Yeah, I can't really share details around that, but you know, I can say I'm, as you can see, not retired on a private island. I'm still living in Brooklyn, so it was, you know, le- you know, still left us hungry enough to to go yeah. again. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> um, so I'm curious. So you you sold Exoprotein, and then how long did it take for you to kind of transition and go? Yep, we're gonna go back into a different business, um, different problem you want to tackle. How long did that take? It's probably about a year, uh, maybe a little bit less. We were you know, thinking about a few different ideas. We knew we wanted to stay in the food industry and we knew we wanted to create a product that had a very large addressable market. We knew we wanted to go after, um, you know, we had a few different criteria for how we wanted to, to sell the product. And so we knew we wanted to launch direct to consumer, which meant we knew the product had to be light and easy to ship. We knew it had to lend itself to daily or habitual consumption so that we could ideally have a subscription model to get a lifetime revenue up. And we knew that we'd sort of learned last time around that you you really grow something quickly when you can target niche audiences. Um, and if you can target sort of diehard keto dieters or paleo dieters, we find that's the easiest way to get the first million or whatever in sales um, rather than going after everybody at once. And so the idea from Magic Spoon was it's, you know, it's a very mainstream and scalable idea to make healthier cereal, but we can sort of inch our way in through this, this side door or back door by first going after people who are gluten-free, keto, you know, low carb, all these kinds of niche, but very, very passionate diets and audiences. Mm, Yeah, that's really smart. Yeah, um, very very interesting around the total uh, addressable mark, to- total size addressable market, because um, it's a forty billion dollar global industry. Like you wouldn't think that, right? I mean, I, it, it depends where you are. I mean, here, every single person I speak to has cereal in their cabinet. So um, it's you know it's it's everywhere. And if people aren't eating it now, they were eating it as kids. So. It's, you know, it's a very, at least here in the States, it's a very sort of the most classic meal I think that people can think of is, is a bowl of cereal. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm from Scotland, obviously, so I didn't quite un- appreciate the size of it until I came here either. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's enormous and people love, love cereal in general. When you said we, uh, are you working with your same co-founder, that you started for the protein brand yep. uh, with Magic Spoon? I am, yep, exactly. Yeah, yep, got you. And um, I'm curious as well, uh, before we move to kind of really delve deep on Magic Spoon, um, why did you decide to sell ExoProtein? Good question. Um, honestly, we were just ready, you know? We've been doing it for five years. It's, it was fun. But it was, it was hard, and we, you know, we got into that because we wanted to transform the food industry, and we wanted to create an entire new food category around insects, starting with crickets. And turned out that was harder than we thought. And so what we realized was, 
we wanted to change the whole food system. In reality, we had like a hipster protein bar company and that wasn't really what we got into it for. So we sort of had to choose like, do we want to keep on selling these bougie hipster protein bars <laughs> or do we want to do something else? And, you know, we wanted to do something else. So we, we sold the business and, you know, and I have this bigger vision to sort of transform the cereal market, which as we said is, is enormous and that's going very well. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so you launched Magic Spoon in 2018, right? 19 actually. Yeah. 19, April of 2019. Okay. 2019. And, um, I find it very interesting like uh, you guys have, have chosen to go direct to consumer because typically cereal you, you buy in supermarkets, right? So so it's, it's yeah, direct to consumer play, not so much a retail play. Are you guys in retailers? No, it's 100% on magicspoon.com. Yep, okay. So I'm curious like how long did it take to go from idea to, you know, working that, uh, you know, that first mold out or whatever that is, that first run, like what is like, you know, the minimum order quantity for something like <laughs> cereal? Yeah. So unlike, unlike protein bars, you can't just make cereal in your kitchen, right? So lots of food products, you can buy the ingredients at the grocery store, you can mix them together, you can make a prototype yourself. With cereal, you need a giant extrusion machine, which costs hundreds of thousands of dollars or maybe even into the millions of dollars. So it's not the kind of thing you can just like try easily at home. Um, so for us, we, you know, we had the criteria of we had certain ingredients that we wanted to use, certain ingredients we we knew we didn't want to use. And then we had certain macronutrient targets to hit. So we basically, we sourced some potential manufacturers and we went to them and we said, hey, we want to create something that's got the taste and texture of classic cereal but it's got 10 or more grams of protein per serving. It's got three grams of net carbs or less per serving. It's got zero grams of sugar. And here's a list of ingredients we're okay using. And, you know, that's high quality proteins. It's, you know, natural fiber, stuff like that. And here's a list of ingredients that are definite no's. And so that was, you know, artificial sweeteners, high fructose corn syrup, um, grains, stuff like that. And then it took a few months of back and forth and R&D and different food scientists and chefs and potential manufacturers. And finally, we got something we were pretty happy with. Um, I don't recall the exact minimum order quantity, but it's you know definitely in the tens of thousands of units for sure. Yeah, I see. And did you do any kind of um, testing with like, random consumers around the taste and and things like that not as much as i would recommend to someone else honestly we <laughs> um, i mean we, we've never been too much for sort of focus groups and like yeah formal testing um i mean you know like you know if it you know if it tastes good or not <laughs> and i think cereal it's not controversial you know we gave it to some friends we you know, sent to some, to some investors and it's pretty clear if people like it or not. Um, maybe there's a middle ground where like you're not sure, but you know, we got good enough feedback, they were confident enough that we wanted to just race towards launch. You know, we don't want to waste any more time. From our perspective, we'd spent like five years learning the ropes at Exoprotein. And so that was like a warm-up. And so now that we'd had that warm-up, we wanted to just like move as quickly as we possibly could and launch Magic Spoon. Yeah, got you. So did you raise capital um, before you started speaking with manufacturers? Sort of in tandem. We we raised about a million dollars before we launched Magic Spoon. And then we raised an additional five and a half about two months after we launched. The The first million was all from the same investors that backed my last business. So, you know, they knew me. They, knew, they sort of trusted me at that point and my co-founder. And so that was you know, a lot quicker than it typically is to raise financing pre-launch, um, you know, just a couple of phone calls and sharing the idea. And and then once we launched and we had a, an you know, amazing first couple of months, then we sort of took that uh, traction and used that to raise a, a larger round. Got you. So can you tell me like about that launch? Like what was the game plan? Um, because yeah, it's, 
the branding is really cool. Like what you guys have done with the branding, very, very cool, very, very impressive, very, very hip. Um, I can see how it could it could stand out in in a, on the shelves. Um, but I'm curious, how did you drum up, uh, you know, first buyers? Very similar strategies to XO Protein, actually. So we, the first round of financing that we raised from Magic Spoon, half of it was from a fund, half of it was from health and wellness influencers. So we had at the time probably a couple dozen influencers who had anywhere from maybe 200,000 to a million followers on whatever platform they, they focus on. And they invested in the brand and then they promoted it at launch. So that enabled us to sort of catapult in the first month and have, you know, millions of eyeballs on us very, very early by leveraging these influencers. And so that was, that was how we launched. Since then, we've continued to sort of double down on that strategy. Influencer marketing has been either our largest or sort of second largest channel basically the whole time and complementing that with some podcast advertising and just classic Instagram, Facebook ads like every other brand does these days. Yeah, got you. And um, you said that launch went really well. Can you talk like any numbers or anything to kind of just share like traction? Yeah, I mean, can't, can't share numbers, but, I, you know, I'd say we – we probably did in our first month what people were thinking we do in the first year, you know, honestly, including myself, <laughs> not, not going to okay, pretend wow. I, I thought it was going to be huge. Um, you know, I was obviously confident, but the, the first month really blew everyone away. And I think I, this might sound silly, but I, I never really appreciated the importance of product market fit. I was sort of of this idea that if you're a smart founder, if you're driven, if you've got hustle and grit, you can make anything work if you try hard enough and if you persist. And I think that's a pretty classic, at least like Silicon Valley prevailing wisdom where like, you you know, you bet on the jockey, like you find a founder you think is really smart and you invest in that person and they'll figure it out, they'll pivot, whatever. And I sort of bought into the idea and I think it's true to some degree, but I think it, it doesn't sort of capture just how much the product matters and the product market fit matters. And we really saw that when we launched Magic Spoon. You know, it, we were no longer pushing. Like, it was a pool that we felt immediately. And and it, I think it's pretty rare and pretty special. And so whenever I'm talking to founders now, that's sort of like the one piece of advice I give, which like sounds so simple and so trivial, but I think a lot of people just underestimate how much product market fit matters and how rare it is to like truly find it as well. Yeah, look, I think that is a really good epiphany you've had because when you're trying to push a product and you just have to get really good at marketing, but then when you put but then when you've got a product that you're trying to sell and it just flies, like selling is effortless. There's something very, very kind of awakening about that where you're just like, wow. And then you take all the marketing chops that you've you've built up and then you just like pour gasoline on the fire totally. and it's 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 crazy. So that's yeah, and I think yeah. I think for me, part of this like epiphany is because I've experienced both extremes. I think I think with exo protein, you know, there was there was zero product market fit. Nobody wanted to eat crickets. And so we had to we had to get really good at convincing people to do something they didn't want to do. And so that was what we were used to. We were used to like taking this product and working so hard to convince someone to click buy. And, you know, it's almost like if you're like, you know, doing a hike with like a really heavy backpack on and you take your backpack off and you're like, whoa, like now I can like sprint. That's sort of how it felt launching Magic Spoon. Yeah, no, that's awesome. So yeah, like, yeah, I, I know exactly what you're talking about and that feeling where you're just like, wow, that's crazy. Never seen anything like it. Um, well, that's awesome. So obviously you sold out. Of, did you sell out in, in the first couple of months or, or like yeah, did you have supply yeah, chain did, issues or what yeah. happened? Yeah, we sold out. We had supply chain issues, all of that. And yeah, it, it's a good problem to have, but it's still a problem. So we had lots of Lots of frustrated customers, um, but you know, ultimately we were able to scale up pretty quickly once we could make proper projections. And so, 
we've mostly been in stock since then, knock on wood. We're actually out of stock last week for a couple of days, but by and large, we've managed to managed to stay in stock. Uh, and that's obviously impossible to predict demand before you launch anything and even hard once you have launched it. You said you raised a further, was it five? Yeah, five and a half or so. Um, so we've raised about, yeah, like six or seven total for this business. When it comes to, I guess, the split, because it's a very interesting uh, model, direct-to-consumer product that's typically sold retailer, um, but it's it's a perishable good to an extent. Doesn't feel like it. It it, it feels like it will last for a long time. How what it, is the life does. shelf? Yeah, so, I mean, it shelf lasts. Life? It lasts about a year. Okay. Yep. So you know, decent size shelf life, but. Um, there's, I, I really like the idea of the subscription because, you know, it just kind of makes sense. You can work out like, you know, how often you have your cereal, like, you know, like your porridge work when you need more and it, it like, what, can you share anything around the split subscription versus mm. one off and like, yeah, yeah, for sure. So we actually don't even push the subscription that hard. I think the subscription makes sense for people that that want that reliability, that have that habit. And so, you know, if you want it, you want it and you buy it. But we're, we're not the kind of company that if you buy our product once, we send you an email the next day being like, hey, please subscribe, please subscribe. Like, here's a discount. Um, we sort of let people figure out the natural cadence of their consumption. And I think there's a little bit of fatigue, subscription fatigue here, at least here in the US, where, you know, people have signed up for like a, toothbrush and they get like a new brush head delivered every month and like who cares and people would you know you see it on your bank statement you're like why am i still paying five dollars a month for this thing that i've never even opened from the mail so i think people are getting a little bit sick of that and so we don't push it too hard and um, it's you know it's very it's a minority of our business for sure um what we actually see which is very interesting is that the like the lifetime value of someone who is a subscriber versus just buying one off isn't actually that different. So if you, you know, if you like magic spoon, you're going to come back and buy X number of times, whether you're coming back at your own pace or whether you're on an automatic subscription. And so we actually find that making it automatic, you know, most companies you'd assume if you make it automatic, they're going to get more than they need. They're going to buy more of it. We actually don't find that's the case. Um, you know, people who like it, they just come back regardless. We don't need to put them on that sort of automatic autofill. Mm, interesting. And like, are you just focusing on the cereal market? Um, I assume you you will not move to like. Do you pl have plans to moving into other breakfast kind of areas? I don't think so. Not in the immediate future. The cereal market, as you said, is it's enormous, and so. You know, if we were playing in a different category that was only a couple hundred million in size, maybe to reach our ambitions, we'd have to re we'd have to expand into other products. But cereal is, you know, many, many, many billions in size. And so, if we want to get to a hundred million in sales, even five hundred million in sales, like it's possible to do that just with cereal. And so, we're going to maniacally and sort of very single-mindedly focus on making healthy, delicious cereal. And I think we can reach our ambitions just with doing that. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. So, um, like in regards, like fast forward to now, um, can you give any kind of numbers if like revenue or like customers or anything to give an idea of traction? Yeah. I mean, I can't share specific revenue numbers. I mean, you know, hundreds of thousands of active customers to give you a sort of rough sense. Yep. Got you. Wow. Um, and, I'm curious, were you guys affected during uh, COVID or did you, um, you know, was it was it adverse or? No, honestly, and yeah, sort of grappling with how to feel about this, but we're very positively affected. We're selling a mostly shelf-stable food product that's delivered right to your door. So as far as businesses that are sort of designed to um, work well in a situation where everyone's in lockdown and doesn't want to go to the grocery store and wants to stay healthy, Magic Spoon's pretty perfect. So very grateful that we happen to have an idea that is, you know, well situated to do well um, in the current in the current world. And so we saw instant increase in demand and it's it's continued, both from existing customers who 
because they're at home with their families, they're having breakfast more often. Maybe previously they were just running to the office or grabbing a Starbucks or whatever. Now they're at home, so they're, eat, they're eating breakfast more. Um, and their kids are at home too, so like they're feeding their kids breakfast more. So existing customers, their, um, their frequency of consumption has gone up. And then new customers also has gone up massively just because people are shopping online more than ever. You know, people that previously weren't sure about ordering cereal from the internet, now they don't really have a choice if they don't want to risk going to the grocery store. So it sounds like things are going well. What about scaling, scaling problems? Like I'm curious, like, okay, you, you guys have got an office in, in New York or your distributed team or what, what's, what's we, we have an office in Manhattan. It's, it's empty right now, unfortunately, but yeah. we're still paying for it. Yeah, yeah, like, like us as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've, got, we've got an office in, um, in uh, Industry City in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, very cool. So, yeah, so um, yeah, still paying for it as well. So, uh, yeah, so I'm curious then how, like, if you've if you've if you've grown rapidly um, during this time period, how have you been able to scale? Uh, like, how many team members have you hired that you haven't met? Like, can you talk us around around that and and the challenges there? Yeah, so we were pre-pandemic, we were five people. Now we're 10 people. So we've doubled in size since March. Two more starting next week, actually. So, you know, we'll have more than doubled in size and haven't met any of them in person. So it's definitely strange. I think, I think it's actually made us better at hiring because we, we don't sort of fall into just hiring someone that we enjoyed getting coffee with, right? You know, instead we, we have to focus more on, um, the actual content of their work. So we've we've become a lot better at making lengthy applications that we give to people as the first step. We've become a lot better at making sort of projects that people have to submit as the final stage of the hiring process. And I think that's removed a lot of the hiring bias that is very easy to fall into. Um, and so we're, we're sort of less falling into the trap of just like hiring someone that's kind of smart and a good culture fit because they came to the office and everyone thought they were like cool and smart. You know, now we're actually really looking at the quality of their work and we're not distracted by anything else. So I actually think it's, it's good ultimately for hiring for us. Mm, interesting. Um, yeah, to be honest, man, I would have thought you would have had a much larger team with the, with the scale you guys are talking. Yeah. Well, well we have, we have a lot of agencies, you know, so even, even if you just look, look at, um, creative, you know, on the creative side, we have, probably three, two freelance graphic designers, one freelance video videographer, um, a freelance email designer. We have two different agencies, no, actually three different agencies that only create different types of Facebook ads for us. We have a branding agency that does like miscellaneous creative work for us and retainer. You know, we've, we've got the, once you add up all those part-time people and freelancers and agencies, it's probably the equivalent of a five or six person creative team and then we've got an equivalent type set up for growth marketing, ops, you know, everything. So wow. if we got if we got rid of our agencies and our freelancers tomorrow, we'd probably need to triple our team size. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, that's what I was saying. Yeah. Um, okay, interesting. So why have you done why have you done that? Because it's faster. You know, I think it's it's very hard to scale as quickly as we have and hire the best people. And so we've decided to like overpay and outsource a lot of it to have that flexibility. Eventually, we'll bring most of it back in house, but it's it's enabled us just to like turn things on quickly, you know, rather than for like influencer marketing, for example, you know, rather than having to hire someone who focuses on Instagram, someone who focuses on YouTube, someone who focuses on TikTok influencers, and like a coordinator to send the packages, you know, like rather than hiring a four-person team there, we found an awesome agency we pay them probably more than we'd be paying a four-person team, but they they just switch on overnight and they do it all for us. So um, we sort of decided that speed is the most important thing for us right now, but eventually we'll sort of restructure things probably for some of those areas anyway. Yeah, look, yeah, eventually speed becomes, if you can bring it internally, it takes time to train, hire, onboard, but yeah, eventually if you bring it in-house, eventually, um, yeah, you can get that that scale. So I'm curious... Um, that's actually a really smart move because you're right. Like 
to, to do you know Facebook ads to work it out to to do the awesome creative then you've got to get a studio all the time you've got to be shooting like it, it there's a lot of operation stuff that you have to worry about then if you just get an agency to do you've said you've got three different three different agencies to do your creative um, you know you can just give them a brief and then they've got their targets and then off they go um, and you can just work with your media buyer of what's working what's working what's working and change it up so I'm curious though, one challenge is finding good agencies, knowing who to trust. There's a lot of agencies that aren't good. H- have you navigated those, like that, those waters? It's all about referrals. So it, it's very hard to know if an agency is going to be good until you've worked them for three months. And every, every agency, or not every agency, but most agencies can put together a fancy deck. And they can sound impressive and they can talk big game. Yep. Yeah. Talk about they, the you know, case they, studies. Yep. Yeah. And they can tell you they've worked with Coca-Cola and, you know, all these big brands. And, you know, it's, it's easy to get impressed by an agency in the first meeting. So we only really work with people that have been referred to us by a brand we know and trust. And so that's generally how we go about it. Um, making sure we do lots of referrals, lots of references. And, uh, you know, we're, we're lucky now that after the Having the last business and this one, we've got a pretty good network of other founders. Um, so we can, you know, we can send off an email or a text to dozens of founders and just say, hey, we're thinking about testing TikTok ads. Does anyone have an amazing partner or agency or freelancer they work with on that? And we'll get a few texts back. Um, so that's generally how we've approached it. When it comes to, I guess, uh, me, uh, you know, PPC, Facebook ads, uh, Instagram ads, TikTok, Snapchat ads, uh, you know, Google AdWords, YouTube display uh, versus influencer marketing. What have you found to be more effective for you guys? It's a good question. Um, influencer marketing is probably what I would say is more effective if I had to choose. And we use that term pretty broadly, right? So that's everything from, you know, partnering with someone with a million followers for an Instagram story and swipe up all the way to, seeding, um, you know, we'll seed 50 to a hundred tiny influencers every week with product and we won't pay them anything. We'll just send them product for free and they'll, they'll post maybe, but you know, it depends. So we sort of do big scale influencer partnerships or, you know, not, not the biggest, but some definitely sizable ones in the, in the millions of followers. And then a lot of sort of smaller seeding. Some of it is upfront cash. Some of it is affiliate revenue share. Um, some of them actually are investors in our business. So we do a lot of stuff on the influencer side. I think with food, it's especially important with food because you you do an Instagram ad, you can take a mouth-watering video or a photo, but like ultimately, it's very hard to tell if that thing's going to taste good. And so, if we can partner with a reputable influencer who's you know either in the food space or wellness space or something, and they can literally just be like eating a bowl of cereal on camera, they're smiling like you can tell they're actually enjoying it and they actually are telling the truth when they say it tastes good, we find that's much more effective. And then, of course, we can repurpose that content into an Instagram ad as well. So there's a little bit of um, synergy between the two also. Yeah, yeah, that's smart. Um, Yeah, look, a big part of influencer marketing, for sure, the people don't talk about enough. They want the immediate return. They don't talk about the content. The content is where it's at. Um, So... I'm curious, like on average, how many influencers would you say you're sending product to per week or per month right now? So on the smaller influencer, just like seeding side, we're probably sending to maybe 50 a week on average, so a couple of hundred a month. And then maybe a quarter of that in like larger partnerships. So maybe on average, sort of one a day of partnering with an influencer that's sort of more in the many hundreds of thousands or into the millions of followers for like an actual collaboration. Um, yeah. And what does that mean when you say like partnering with an influencer and actual collaboration? What, what does that mean exactly? So it means as opposed to just sending someone some cereal and saying like, Hey, thought you'd like this, like share it if you want. It's us saying, Hey, um, you know, we ask for certain metrics. We have certain amounts we're willing to pay per view or swipe or whatever. And then we say, you know, we want, You know, if it's on YouTube, we want a 60 second integration where you talk about the protein, the carbs, the taste, you have like a bowl of cereal in the frame, you know, fairly, fairly strict things we need them to hit. And, you know, we'll pay a certain price per 
you know, average view on YouTube or whatever, or per average story view on Instagram stories. And it's, you know, it's either a flat fee upfront based on that, or we're giving them a percentage of revenue on the back end, or sometimes a combination of the two. Um, so I get yeah, the distinctions like larger paid partnerships versus just unpaid seeding of influencers. Got you. And what do you find out of all the different platforms works better or what is working the most effectively for you from Instagram stories to posting on the Instagram feed to YouTube, TikTok, Snapchat posts? So we actually find that Instagram stories works probably the best. Most brands that I talk to find that YouTube influencers work better. So maybe we just haven't found the right the right YouTube influencers yet. But, you know, feed posts on Instagram, they work well, but usually influencers want more money for them and they don't work well enough to justify the more money. We haven't tried Instagram reels yet. Pretty curious to test that out. Um, and there's definitely some like algorithm changes going on on Instagram that's sort of screwing everything up a little bit right now. So Oh, uh, yeah. I reels, think- they boom, man. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. So it's it's super interesting. Um, you know, my guess is that Instagram stories are going to stop working so well and we're going to have to start doing some real sponsorship. But yeah, um, we find, you know, YouTube's decent, but Instagram stories are a little bit better. And then podcasts work very well for us as well. And we sort of view that as conceptually the same as influencer marketing. You know, it's, you know, whether the person's on audio or on Instagram or YouTube or whatever, it doesn't matter. You know, it's someone that people trust talking about a product so we sponsor a decent amount of podcasts too mm, yeah so almost tell me about that for an e-com brand um ha- what do you use to find uh like like how do you do that we work with an agency on that um some, some of it's through an agency some of it's direct um there's a few different ways to go about it. i think one of the the easiest ways to go about it is to figure out what other brands are doing and so for us we look at what brands in the direct consumer space, especially in food, are spending at large scales on podcast and what podcasts have they sponsored multiple times? And that's probably an indication that it's worked. And we do the same thing on influencer. You know, if um if a brand we admire that's, you know, triple our size and a similar customer base has worked with some influencer or podcaster five times, we assume they're getting a good return there. And so we'll contact that influencer or that podcaster. Mm, yeah got it awesome um and i'm curious when you talk about kind of you've got your metrics and numbers would you be able to share what you're prepared to pay no i, I can't i can't really share share that unfortunately um that's okay uh, look that, I, that, that would make yeah. our negotiation a bit hard with them if I revealed <laughs> yeah look that's okay i i just know like you know like uh, what what people will want to hear they're watching right now they've got oh i yeah. wonder how well, much so- it like yeah yeah, I mean, you, you need to test it. It's going to be different for different brands. So, you know, what we did and what I'd recommend others do is work with, you know, let's say we're talking about YouTube. So um, find five YouTubers with different amounts of followers, do a deal with them, don't worry too much about price, and then note down how many how many views each one did and the dollars in sales and sort of average it across the five and then you can figure out, like for my product, on average, I'm probably going to get, you know, 15 cents in sales for every view. And based on that, you know, you can say, okay, so I can pay seven cents per view probably if like this random YouTuber behaves like these other ones. And so you just sort of like work backwards from that and adjust it. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Uh, that, that's awesome, man. Thank you. Because that, that's really helpful for people. Because I know like, yeah, that's what people want to know. They just want to get straight to it. How do you do this? Like, because obviously you're doing something right, man. So, um, okay. So uh, talk to me around, I guess, uh, what's next? Um, because you, it sounds like you guys got really good growth. Um, you're scaling as fast as you possibly can. You're using agencies to help manage that growth. And, sp- and, and scale, what's next? So honestly, we're trying not to make this thing too complicated. You know, I, I always have to try and think of a good answer when someone asks me what next, because we just want to keep on doing more and more of the same and pour gasoline on the fire. Um, you know, what we're doing is working. I think it's very easy to fall into the trap of overcomplicating things. And it's very easy to say like, okay, we've nailed influencer and we've nailed Instagram ads. So let's go figure out these like other 10 channels and then you get distracted and then you stop being good at Instagram ads and you stop being good at influencer marketing. So for us, we've figured out some things that work. We've got product market fit. 
we're going to launch some new flavors. You know, we're going to hire some more people. We're going to start bringing things in house. But ultimately, we just want to keep on doing more of the same and do a lot more of it and step on the gas and scale it up. Mm. Okay. And are you guys on Amazon? Nope, we're not. You plan to be? One day. Um, we, I mean, we know we're missing that opportunity. You know, we know there are tens of thousands of searches every month on Amazon for Magic Spoon cereal, branded searches. Um, so we're definitely leaving money on the table and we're definitely making some of our competitors quite rich. We're bidding on our search terms there. <laughs> um, but at the same time, we're a small team. We don't want to get distracted. What we're doing elsewhere is working very well. And obviously launching on Amazon is going to cannibalize our owned website, magicspin.com. So we want to avoid that. And it just introduces some operational complexity into an otherwise very simple business. So we'll do it at some point, probably at some point next year, but we're not in a rush. And similar to how we approach brick and mortar retail, if we can continue to grow as quickly as we want to grow just on magicspin.com, there's no need for us to go to Amazon. There's no need for us to go to Whole Foods or Target or Costco or wherever else. But eventually our online growth on our own website will slow down. And so before that happens, that's when we want to make sure we can sort of jump on these other opportunities. Yeah, because I know that would be a frustration because you've got all these other Amazon people or companies or individuals that that's all they do. They just look for trends and then they piggyback off those trends and then, you know, Amazon customers, they're very, very loyal and they trust Amazon like you wouldn't believe. They're very bratty yeah. from my experience. Yep. Yep. Um, and they are problematic. They Like if, if there's a, a crack in the box, straight away <laughs> refund. Yep. Yep. Um, but they buy. Um, so it's, it's a double-edged sword because you've got all these competitors or, or people that are piggybacking off the back of your brand and it's kind of frustrating, but then if you if you do the Amazon play, you lose margin. You're competing against your store, like like your own website. So it's a, it's a tricky dance to play. I have friends that big e-commerce businesses, and it's yeah, it's tough, man. Yeah, it's it's a tricky decision for sure. Um, but you know, eventually you got to do it. Perhaps the lesson there is around brand loyalty. How can you how can you scale? the relationship with the customer and and build a relationship much more deeper than just transactional based. So then people, it doesn't matter if there's another product on Amazon. It doesn't matter. Like they want to go straight to the source. Yeah. And there's ways we can do that. For example, you know, we're only going to launch certain flavors on our own website, even if we're on Amazon. Um, you know, maybe we'll have a couple of our best sellers on, on Amazon, but the other 10 flavors you'll have to come to magicspin.com to get. And limited edition flavors will only drop on magicspin.com. And maybe we do different serving sizes only on magicspin.com. So, you know, there's ways to capture the existing demand on Amazon from that customer without giving people a reason to leave our site for Amazon, uh, making sure it's a better experience all around, better customer service, best pricing, so on and so forth. Yeah, got you. And I agree. I, I love that. And I'm curious, what are you doing strategically because you do have competitors in the space um which you said you know you guys you have made doing very well made rich um what are you doing to facilitate that growth trust and relationship with your existing customer base and new customers you're bringing to your world i think the most important thing is just having a really really good product and we have a lot of copycats none of their products are anywhere near as good as ours and so if someone tastes a couple of the competing brands, they're going to come back to us like hands down. And we, we can like see on Instagram, it's kind of funny. Like people will comment on our ads saying, Oh my God, I tried your competitor. Never again. Yours is a hundred times better. Like we get those comments every single day. And I think it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking like the way you, the way you keep your customers loyal is like, you know, fostering community as much as you can. That's important. But what's more important is having the best possible product because ultimately you can only get so far with like cool social media that like makes people feel like they're part of a community. That's helpful. And, you know, we do that and we, you know, we're, we're introducing SMS and we, we literally call up our customers and get to know them. Um, we do lots of surveys. We have customers vote for new flavors. So 
we do try and build community with like all the standard tactics, but ultimately the way we're going to keep people around is delivering a really, really delicious, healthy product. And so that's the core focus. So look, we have to work towards wrapping up Gabby, but this is a green, a really great interview of, um, I drilled you pretty hard, man. Uh, we've got a lot of gold. <laughs> it's been fun. Uh, so I'm curious, like, uh, just working towards wrapping up, like anything that uh, you'd, you would have liked me to ask you that I haven't asked you that you'd like to share or any wor- final words of wisdom? And then uh, where's the best place people can find out more about yourself and Magic Spoon? Yeah, so I think we've co- we've covered a lot. Um, you know, we touched on this, but I think my my sort of single piece of advice I like to give that's most important is just not to get distracted for a founder. And a founder's job is to say no to as much stuff as you possibly can. And whether that's investors, like I always recommend having like one or two investors you really trust rather than like a hundred investors you don't really know, or whether it's acquisition channels, like I think it's best to get really, really good at Facebook ads and influencers and not even bothering with Snapchat and TikTok and Pinterest and everything else, Um, whatever it is, just like get really good at a couple of things and don't get distracted. Um, I think it's sort of the most important thing that a lot of founders falter on. Awesome. And uh, where's the best place people can find out more about Magic Spoon? Yeah, magicspoon.com. And the Instagram is at magicspoonserial. Awesome. Well, look, thank you so much for your time, man. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content, either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.